This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. Today, unrest in Sudan. Our panelists are Neda Magbule from the University of Toronto, Clayton Childress from the University of Toronto, Aliza Luft from UCLA, and James R. Jones from Rutgers, Newark. The panel was recorded on Thursday, April 11th, 2019. So we're recording this episode on Thursday, April 11, and just overnight, after months of uprising in the streets by the people of Sudan, President Omar al-Bashir has stepped down after 30 years in power. So right now, there's been a state of emergency declared, but the protest still seems very active at this point. Uh, Eliza, you're on my mind because right now you're teaching this enormous 300-person standing room only class at UCLA on the sociology of violence. And so there might be ways that you or your students are following this story. And I'm curious, what's your take on what's happening? Hmm. So I feel like I, in honesty and fairness, it's not standing room only because we have 300 seats and, you know, some students don't show up. So there's, it's packed. <laughs> it's very full. There's 300 of them and I have to use like a Madonna microphone. Um, but, you know, there's room for them. Wait, what's a Madonna microphone? It's like, what you know, it's just on those mics, but I feel like I should vogue while I'm speaking. Oh, like it's connected to your face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, it's cool. It's totally <laughs> ridiculous. I know. I was like, wait, they might not know this. So I call it a Rihanna mic sometimes too. Um, <laughs> but I like, I mean, I have so many thoughts about this. The first I'll say is like, Part of me just thinks this is so exciting because Bashir is such a monster. Um, and wow, like, you know, he is out. But simultaneously, he is being replaced by the military um, and also by generals who have been very, very involved in the genocide, very involved in supporting his violence. Um, and so the Sudanese Professionals Association, who helped organize these protests, which were, you know, heavily, um, heavily featured women um, at the forefront of these policies, which is why we've seen this beautiful image circulating everywhere of a Sudanese woman standing up and protesting. Um, I think she's on top of a car with a, you know, mic in her hand. Um, they have, the Sudanese Professionals Organization said that the uh, military coup is not acceptable, actually, and that they're very upset and and they're insisting on a civil government. And I think as much as those of us who care about the situation, um, or I'll just say myself, um, I'm very excited about the possibility of this change and um, also think it's just fascinating from the perspective of people who do research on civilian decision making in times of conflict and violence. Um, and how civilians can respond to genocide, for example, even though that's not what they were responding to in this case specifically. Um, it's important to pay attention to what it's being replaced with and whether or not that's going to be anything that's meaningfully different. Yeah, I think those are such excellent points to raise, Eliza, because um, just from the very cursory read I've been doing of the news, um, you know, 
the people are not going home. Uh, as you said, mm-hmm. this has been in some ways like a military takeover. Some are calling it a coup. And so uh, the protest seems very active, although there has been a curfew set now and, you know, there's various ways that they're trying to tamp down uh, the kind of public uprising from this point forward. But, um, you know, I want to go back to what you mentioned, which was the image of the 22-year-old woman. Her name is Ala Salah. Uh, she's an engineering and architecture student. And uh, yeah, this is, I think, the image that right now um, most of us in North America who have been uh, keeping up with the news or at least are aware of it, this is the image we have of the Sudan uprising is Ala Salah standing on top of this car, leading what looks like thousands of protesters who are watching her and they're holding up and recording her on their smartphones. Uh, And she's wearing the traditional garment called the tobe, uh, a white tobe. And she has like a very stylized sort of hairdo and and jewelry, right, which is evoking um, this particular iconography of of femininity, of Sudanese femininity. And so um, I think as sociologists, this makes us very curious, right, about which images circulate, the importance, right, of iconography and these sorts of images. Uh, so, yeah, is this something that you guys have been noticing? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I, I think uh, you're both touching on something really interesting in that, you know, with the military takeover, we are you know, when you're living in history in real time, we're very much in the rough draft of history. Uh, and that means that we don't know uh, if that image will remain iconic or if it will then become non-representative uh, and we will have to replace it with another image. Um and it's just, uh, you know, these these are not novel insights, uh, but it's just fascinating how much uh, our memories of events are guided through an iconic image or uh, even if we remember those events at all. Like, I'm not entirely sure if the Kent State Massacre would be as remembered as much as it is today without that image mm-hmm. uh, or in the same way that, uh, you know, remembering World War II through the Sailor Kiss on V-Day very much aligns with a greatest generation narrative uh, and uh, at the same time erases the 75 million people who died on the way up to that kiss. So uh, as far as uh, capturing images go, I feel like uh, the image that is becoming very iconic right now really is a great one. Um, But we don't know what's going to happen and it may ultimately be a, a very useless one and one that has to be replaced. I also just have to point out that that iconic image of that kiss was actually an instance of sexual assault and that got totally yes. erased from the story, right? Absolutely. There was zero um, consent in that kiss. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's very fascinating. So uh, the other thing about this iconic image is that in some ways it's very representative of uh, what's happening throughout many countries in Africa, especially in East Africa, which is that women are really at the forefront of political change. Um, and Marie Berry does amazing work on this. And so we see, and, and it makes me think like, did this image make the rounds and become so iconic because it goes against Western assumptions of what Africa is like, you know? So you have this educated woman on top of a car speaking and protesting all these smartphones, um, taking pictures of her. To what extent does the power of images and their ability to stick in our mind also come from their ability to challenge our assumptions about what we think these I, these situations are like like would people even be paying attention to what was happening in Sudan if it weren't for that image? Yeah, 
this has been going on for a while now, but now you have the image. So people are paying attention. Yeah. Totally. And I can just even say for myself that, you know, it was about four months ago that the uprisings, like the first time I sort of come, saw it come across my social media and um, I became aware of what was happening on the ground was about four months ago. But it wasn't until the image of Ala Salah that went viral this week that I even reconnected it to a resource that I wanted to mention to people who might be teaching courses on gender or, you know, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, but it's this book and it I finally was remembered, uh, reminded of it. It came out in 2017. It's called Khartoum at Night. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by a historian at the University of Kansas named Marie Grace Brown. And the subtitle of her book, Khartoum at Night, is Fashion and Body Politics in Imperial Sudan. And it's this really awesome award-winning book that breaks down the iconography of that taube garment that Ala Salah was wearing in the viral Mm. picture this week. And so um, she gives this really deep dive into, right, the particularities of the femininity, the middle-classness, the the sort of um, piousness that is being channeled through through the um, the way that she was staging her body through her fashion choices and so um, I think you know I'm just offering that as something that people can look up if you're thinking about ways to write like kind of learn more about this yourself or if you want to engage students in a conversation about you know this image that they might be aware of from this past week too then that could be a really great place to start again it's called Khartoum at night by the historian Marie Grace Brown. And if you're a publishing nerd, the cover is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Shout out Stanford University Press uh, for doing a really beautiful job on Dr. Brown's book. Um, so, Eliza, you also mentioned um, kind of what this moment reveals more broadly about um, women and their role right now um, with different political engagements across Africa. And I uh, thought this would be a great opportunity to touch base with you about some of your research because it's been 25 years since the Rwandan genocide and you're among the many sociologists uh, who do great work on that topic. So I was curious, how is this anniversary being discussed by sociologists? Oh boy. Um, (laughs) It's so I'll say, first of all, that I've been surprisingly emotional about it. Um, and maybe I'm not sure why it's surprising. It's uh, obviously a country that I care deeply about, people that I care deeply about. And um, and uh, 25 years, it's, it's like I remember for me what it was like first hearing about it. I remember when I decided that I wanted to try and understand it better um and i have not been able to go back to the country for a long time partly because of government suppression and authoritarianism and um the fact that my work is i mean yeah more like the op-eds i've published have been controversial and i've been tracked by the government because of it um than the stuff that i've published in academic journals but This is all a way to say that within the sociological community and political science and people who care deeply about Rwanda, there's a lot of controversy uh, about the 25th anniversary and how it's being handled and also about present day Rwandan politics. I'm working on an article with Sue Thompson, who's actually done excellent research in Rwanda about this um, and was arrested and incarcerated because of her research in a Rwandan prison. Um, And the biggest issue is that 
the history and memory of the genocide has been heavily manipulated by the current government to promote very particular political agendas. And so while these, for me, seeing these images of the 25th anniversary of the genocide, um, you know, evoke a lot of strong emotions in terms of the sadness of the violence and its consequences, the part of the consequences that are also difficult for me to see are how hard it is to speak openly and frankly about the history of the genocide in Rwanda um, in a way that disagrees with the government's narrative. So for people who don't know, um, many, you know, millions of people were killed in the genocide, um, Tutsi as well as moderate Hutu. Uh, a lot of my research shows how people made very difficult decisions to kill or not kill at different points in time. And some people, some Hutu civilians killed um, while saving Tutsi simultaneously. It is not as clear as the popular narrative promotes that all Hutu hated all Tutsi. I mean, in some of the areas I've studied, you had 70% rates of intermarriage. So I think that claiming there were sort of these deep-seated hatreds and ethno-racial antagonisms and that's why people killed really doesn't do justice to what their lives were like beforehand and what those decision-making processes were like during the violence. But if you are in Rwanda today, you're not allowed to talk about that. You are not allowed to talk about ethnicity unless you frame all Tutsi as victims and all Hutu as perpetrators. If you disagree with the government's narrative, you're accused of genocide divisionism and you're thrown in jail. Um, people who have tried to run on alternative political platforms than Kagame, and this includes women, um, have been thrown in jail or forcibly disappeared. And so the 25th anniversary of the genocide, I think, is just bringing a lot of this to the surface and internal debates within sociology and political science about what it means and uh, what it will mean for Rwanda moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something that I definitely um, have been thinking a little bit about because, you know, we do have a Rwandan diaspora here in Canada yeah. that I've gotten to know a little bit better, like through our students and where we live in Toronto, but also we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the uh, civil war uh, in Sri Lanka mm. and the beginning of a really big Tamil diaspora yes. in Canada as well. And so, um, yeah, it's been on my mind sort of the way we are channeled into particular kinds of commemorations and what that can also look like in diaspora too. So now I have to plug Kate Cronin Furman, who actually has a fantastic piece on the politics of memory in Rwanda versus Sri Lanka um, in the LA Review of Books that she published, I think it was last year. And it's a really thoughtful um, analysis. And, and a lot of this depends, and this relates back to Sudan, a lot of this depends on the governments that come into power afterwards. And we know this as sociologists, and sociologists write about it publicly, um, <laughs> that how conflicts are remembered is powerfully shaped by the people who come into power afterwards and the national narratives that are put forth. Um, and Rwanda has been putting forth a very, very powerful narrative of Rwandanness um, and this idea that we are all Rwandan and eliminating ethnicity, quote unquote, from public discourse. Uh, but one of the things that I, and you know, Sue Thompson and I's paper is about is how Rwandans maintain their true 
understanding and the history of the genocide from their perspectives, despite not being legally allowed to talk about it in particular forums. And to me as a sociologist, I said, I'm obsessed with theory. This really speaks a lot to practices of race and ethnicity in everyday life. How do we embody our identities when we can't explicitly speak about them? And how do we keep memories of violence alive that are tied to those identities when you can't explicitly speak about them? You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to our panelists, Netta Magbule from the University of Toronto, Clayton Childress from the University of Toronto, Aliza Luft from UCLA, and James R. Jones from Rutgers, Newark. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sochanex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Thank you for listening.